A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. Chapter three, the letters from no one. By the time he was allowed out of his cupboard again, the summer holidays had started and Dudley had already broken his new video camera, crashed his remote control airplane, and first time out on his racing bike. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. I'm Matt Potts. And I'm Jolie Doggett. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. This week, we are thrilled to be joined by our friend Jolie Doggett, who writes at the intersection of race, gender, and pop culture. She is a senior editor for Zora, a publication for and by women of color. And you can find her blog at JolieDoggett.com. Jolie, welcome back. We're so excited to have you. I'm excited to be here. A whole guest host. Like, I'm going to stay for the whole episode. It's crazy. Thank you, guys. So, Jolie, we are picking the themes in a slightly different way. And so we gave you the option of picking a theme and you picked the theme of obedience. I did. And you have a story for us. Yes, I did choose the theme of obedience because I actually thought it would be a pretty easy thing for me to talk about. I figured the hardest part would be choosing one story of obedience from my life to tell. Like, do you guys want to hear the story about how some random popular kid in middle school asked me to take a test for him? And I was like, yeah, sure. And then a principal caught me taking said test. And he was just like, are you taking a test for another kid? I was like, yep, sure am. Or I could tell a story about how I was a ride or die girlfriend for some boyfriends who were definitely not even worth riding to the gas station with. And or I can tell 
a story about how I was a rock star intern in New York and I was always doing all the grunt work that no one else wanted to do, staying out at events till two, being at my desk at 6 a.m. even though no one else was going to be there till nine. Obedience is kind of like a major personality trait for me as a child and as a young adult. I was a very good kid in strong air quotes. I was always mommy's little helper or daddy's little helper or teacher's little helper. And I found myself looking back on my life, trying to think of a story to tell for this episode. And I got really sad and like really embarrassed and like a little upset with myself and was thinking like, has there ever been a time in my life where I've done something solely out of my own will and not out of a desire to please someone else, out of a desire to be obedient to someone else? And so last Monday, I was laying in bed watching Gilmore Girls and my phone was in my hand and I was about to actually call Vanessa and be like, hey, is a week away from the podcast too late to change the entire theme of the show to something <laughs> that is less emotionally draining for me. And my phone was in my hand and my dad sent me a text message and he sent me a picture. It was a picture of myself. I was four years old, blankly staring away from the camera. I had not yet learned how to look into a lens. I'm like always like a little to the left or <laughs> a little to the right. Had these big pigtails in my hair and a velour turtleneck on, which I definitely wore out of obedience to my mother because I hate turtlenecks and I hate velour. And that was a combo and it was probably terrible for a little four-year-old me. And my dad, he sent the text and it read, knowing what you know now, what would you tell this beautiful young soul? My dad's very philosophical when he wants to be. And I didn't even hesitate. I called him and I was like, I'd probably tell her to stop being such a goody two-shoes and don't worry so much about disappointing others and to be more obedient to herself. And my dad was like, okay. Like he didn't even get to say hello before I just went on this whole rant about obedience because that was the theme of my week leading up to that point. But I think that's what I want us to think about as we're heading into our discussion today. Like, Obedience in itself, I do not think is a bad thing, but I think we should start questioning what are the motives for being obedient and who are we being obedient to and why? How have we disguised obedience as ambition at an internship or loyalty to partners? When are there opportunities when we can be more obedient to ourselves? And I think in this chapter, we see a lot of behavior that we might actually call disobedient. We definitely see a lot more sassy Harry and some characteristics that we would definitely qualify as rebellious. And he actually does go on to lead an entire rebellion more than once. But I wonder if those are really examples of people breaking the rules or just being more obedient to themselves and to their goals. And I want to talk more about that. How are we seeing obedience to the self? And is that always a good thing? So I'm excited to talk about it and maybe also get some healing from my own childhood trauma in the process. One of the things I was thinking is that like obedience is always takes an object. It's always obedient to whom? Like it's interesting that the way you started your story was like, here's an example of obedience. I was disobeying the principal and my teacher by cheating on a test for this other friend, right? Like it's actually like you could have told the same that same story about an example of disobedience. Like I was defying an authority figure out of loyalty to this person who asked me to take a test, right? And so like one of the things I want to think about, and this is related to what you're saying about like to whom are we obedient? Are we obedient to ourselves? Are we obedient to authority figures? Why? Like 
digging through what those intuitions are and what those kind of unexamined motivations are. Because I want to think about like, we're always obedient to something. We are subject to control by all kinds of forces that are not under our control and deciding when and how to resist the control of others. That's the the moral question, right? Deciding which control to resist and who we should direct our resistance towards. Like that's really the difficult kind of moral question and the thing that demands moral reflection and the thing that we shouldn't just do instinctively, but need to examine in ourselves and in others, right? At least that's what I hear from your story, right? Absolutely. And I think we see that in this work of fiction. And we also see that in the real life right now, like through acts of civil disobedience. I love the way you're framing, like we're not looking to just be disobedient or rebellious. We're looking to change the object to which we are being obedient to, either fundamentally change it or to replace it entirely. And I'm speaking, of course, about the Black Lives Matter movement and other moments of rebellion or other moments of protest that we have seen in the last couple of years or so, good or bad, you know, like they're all ways of just changing who are we going to be obedient to. And again, I'm curious as to like how we decide to choose what we are obedient to. So I'm going to go first in the 30 second recap. Jolie, can you count me down? Yes. Are you ready? I am. Okay. Three, two, one. Go. They've given Dudley a weapon and he's walking around and hitting everybody. And then a um, mail starts arriving and Harry got a letter and there it goes to like the kid in the cupboard and they're like, oh, shoot. And so they give Harry a bedroom because they're like, someone knows we're locking him in a cupboard and it's those magical people. And more and more letters keep coming. And Vernon is like, no way. He starts staying home from work and he like boards up the door and then he runs from the letters and he eventually takes everybody to an island and they're like, isn't it enough food or blankets for Harry? And then there's a big knock on the door because he's 11 years old. I think that's good. That went so fast. Jolie, I'll give you guest choice. Would you like to go second or third? I'll go I'll go third. I'll go third. It'll it'll give you a soft landing. I'm very bad at 30 second recaps. It's very stressful. I get up early on Mondays. I'm, it stresses me out, but we'll we'll give it a try. Who's got me in? I am. On your mark. Get set. Go. Okay, they come back from the zoo and everyone's mad and he has to go in the closet for like all of summer. And then he comes out. Oh, that, that stresses me out to see the numbers. Okay, he comes out and uh, he's going to smell things. Not he, Dudley's going to smell things. And then the letter comes and he and and it's to the boy in the cupboard and they move into the bedroom and then more letters come and Vernon gets crazy and they go to a hotel and the hotel's not the right place because the letters still come and then they go to the shack and then Harry's watching the clock and the time is ticking and there's a knock on the door and uh, it's going to be good news. You did great. I I did not do great. It's good for me to do terrible. (laughs) You're doing a public service. All right, Jolie. Show us how it's done. Okay, I'm ready. Three, two, one, go. So Dudley's going to a new school and Harry just got out of the cupboard and find out he has to wear wet clothes to his new school. But then he gets a letter from he doesn't know it yet, but his actual new school and everyone starts freaking out. And Dudley and Harry have a bonding moment over their sheer curiosity about what's in these letters that are addressed to the cupboard. And Petunia and Vernon have a bonding moment over their concern about the abuse they've given this 11 year old child. And they move him into a new bedroom and Harry gets stale chocolate cake and they drive around a lot and they go to a house in the lake. And then Harry turns 11 years old and there's a big knock on the door. And who is it? We'll find out later. That was masterful, Jolie. That was. That was annoying. Here's a nerd alert. I've been listening to this podcast from the very beginning, and every time Vanessa and Casper would do a a recap, I would also do my own. I would just pause, and I would recap, too, because I have... (laughs) still have no friends, ladies and gentlemen, so it's okay. 
I also want to point out something I really wanted to say in honor of Casper is I'm very concerned about these owls who are having to fly all over the place and deliver pounds of letters to Harry as some kind of sick joke from Dumbledore. It's not fair to the owls. Justice for the owls. Absolutely. Jolie, where do you want to start on the theme of obedience? So when I was rereading the book, I started highlighting places where I just saw just specific examples of just straight up people being obedient to people. And the first place I saw was Dudley's gang and how they followed Dudley in being mean to Harry. I wonder who Dudley is following in being mean to Harry. So getting out of like the specific example of, oh, like these kids following another kid. I'm wondering what messages those kids also follow, what messages those kids have received from the adults in this chapter to be mean to Harry. And I kind of want to know what you guys think about that. I mean, Dudley definitely learns it from home. The question is what's going on in these other children's households that they want to kowtow to this bully. There's Bullying 101 that I understand, which is the story that we tell kids who are being bullied, at least, that bullies are actually scared. Bullies actually have really low self-confidence. But that doesn't seem to be the case with Dudley. The shocking moment to me is that Dudley hits Vernon in this chapter with his smelting stick. Mm -hmm. And then Vernon hits Dudley later. So there's definitely just abuse going on even between Vernon and Dudley, which I feel like is something that I forgot. I think of the Dursleys as being abusive to Harry and being sort of psychologically abusive to Dudley by not giving him any limits. But there's also physical abuse going on in this house. And it's just so interesting to me that they arm Dudley... Like, what is he being obedient to? I guess to this idea of what it means to be manly that he's learned from Vernon. Mm -hmm. Obedience is, is about control. If you want others to be obedient because you want to control them you're, or you're submitting to the control of others when you're obedient. I think this chapter helps us like maybe start a conversation about toxic masculinity. Like, why is there this version of masculinity, which the smelting school clearly is lifting up and trying to impress upon its students, giving them sticks to beat each other with. You can see in someone like Vernon that he cannot control what is happening. These letters keep coming. It doesn't matter what he does, the letters keep coming and he cannot control it. And what he does is bully his family in response to what he cannot control. He controls more the people he can't control. And so he, right, he takes them all over the country and goes to these places and makes them not eat and puts them in a little shack and beats Dudley, right? Like the more he feels like he's losing control, the more scared he gets of the thing he cannot control, the more that trickles down as enforced obedience and abuse toward the people he does actually have control over. And that is like this model of like of toxic masculinity. I agree. I thought about that. I even wrote that down in my notes of like Vernon's obedience to this idea of being the head of a household. Like, granted, his methods are very strange and very hyperbolized in the books. But just like my job is to protect this family from what I perceive to be a threat. And so what I'm going to do is ship them out to this rock in the middle of an ocean. And this is where they'll be safe. Yeah, yeah. I'm like picturing Vernon's like, yeah, this is it. Muttering to himself all the time. I think it's very interesting that we started, we followed Dudley to Vernon because I was, as I was reading this and as I was thinking of my own stories of obedience, I was thinking about where are the roots of where we're deciding to be obedient? Like who is actually in control? Who is the authority figure in this case? And I would submit to the class 
that it is not Vernon who everyone is being obedient to in this chapter. It is Petunia that people are being obedient to in this chapter. I think Petunia sets the tone for the entirety of this series because Vernon knows nothing about the Wizarding World. He knows not to be afraid of these letters until he meets and marries young Petunia Evans. I wonder if Petunia did not harbor so much ill feeling toward her sister, which we'll learn about later um, in the series, would she have treated Harry differently? And if she had treated Harry differently, given him a bedroom when he was initially taken in, if she had been more obedient to Dumbledore's letter that we also learn about in later books, would everyone else also treat Harry differently? Like we see Aunt Marge, she appears in this chapter and like, it's very obvious that like Aunt Marge hates Harry, but I'm like, would she? Or is she just following the directive that she's gotten from her brother, which he has gotten from his wife? And I found it so interesting because I saw even Dudley, when they're both being thrown out of the living room trying to get the letters, he and Harry kind of have like a bonding moment where they're kind of just like looking at each other like, what's going on? Whether Like they're actually having a very minor conversation and I'm like if Dudley was more obedient to himself would he have been a friend an ally or a cousin to Harry as opposed to following the direction of his parents I don't know I'm curious to know what you guys think about Petunia being the actual person in control in this chapter I like that reading of Petunia. I think my reading of Petunia is a little bit different because you'll hear in my blessing. I see her as like really wounded from the rejection, you know, from Hogwarts and kind of losing her sister in a figurative sense when Lily goes away. And then in a real sense, when when Lily dies later, I see her as like succumbing to, again, this loss of control. She feels like she cannot control. She doesn't have control over her family, over what happens to her sister, over whether or not she gets to have magic. Right. And so she gets she's attracted to this person like Vernon, who has all the answers, who knows that the world is ordered, here's the way things are, right? I think the way you're reading is really interesting and makes me want to think, okay, now what if I shift the frame, oh boy, everything happens differently. So I'm really grateful for that that reading. I mean, the other person that I was thinking is in control, but this is absolutely related, Jolie, is Dumbledore. Dumbledore's tactic in the first chapter is to leave Harry on the doorstep. So I wonder if there was this conversation about how to treat Harry. I don't know. Harry's being treated like a piece of trash. So Petunia is sort of given permission to just keep leaving this kid on doorsteps or in closets. And then rather than Dumbledore come to the house and be like, this is something that we have to confront, he does this like act of terrorizing this family. I feel for the Dursleys and being scared of the magical world. The magical world took Lily away from Petunia, killed her sister, left this boy on their doorstep and is now sending all these letters. I just think that they are scared. And of course, not all scared people act this way. They could take one of these letters and return it and be like, can we please have a conference? Right. There are so many other choices that they could make. But Dumbledore is giving them a very difficult situation to respond to. Oh, yeah. I thought about Dumbledore and the theme of obedience and just like, what kind of protocol is he insisting upon being obedient to and sending these letters? Like he's shown up at their house before and will do it again. Part of me just feels like he's just deciding to be a real stickler for the rules this time and just keep sending these letters and keep using these owls um, to send these letters over and over again. 
partially out of his own humor. And I guess that's his obedience to himself um, and what he will get joy out of that day. But I wonder if there's also just like, oh, let me just do things the regular way, knowing full well that Harry is an irregular case and it probably needs to be handled differently. But he's just like, meh, let's just see what happens, which he does a lot with Harry's actual life many, 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 many times. Poor Harry. I feel like this chapter really does toxic masculinity so well. The few moments in my life that I have seen men get violent is when they feel as though there's a situation that they should be able to control and they can't control it. Really, like hell hath no fury, like a man who thinks that he should be able to control something and can't. I remember seeing that specifically in an uncle of mine who just statistics would come out in California about how minorities were becoming a bigger and bigger part of the population. And that felt like a really threatening thing that he could not control. And it was I don't know if he was becoming more racist in front of us as children or just more vocal about his racism. His response to it was just hate and hate and hate and just this rise in a violent temperament. And I think that this is such an interesting microcosm of that with with Vernon, right? Mm -hmm. Like he has been taught that if he goes to work and sits with his back away from the window and concentrates and sells drills, that he will be given a house and a car and a child. And the rules are just being disrupted. He can't even trust that the mail won't come on Sunday. (laughs) That's true. And so this whole chapter speaks to me of not only that the ways that men are victims of patriarchy, but how they become weapons of it. Patriarchy has weaponized Vernon into being this violent, abusive person to his whole family, putting them in an incredibly dangerous situation. And then the stakes just keep getting raised. And so Hagrid is going to come, this huge man with these magical powers. And so it ends up always being just like, who's bigger? Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. What you said about your uncle and his like increase in hatred or increase in verbalizing his hatred, it kind of made me think about how our emotions become something that we become obedient to without really being able to see reason behind it a lot. Like I'm a black woman for those who can't see me, which is everyone listening to this podcast. (laughs) So I've experienced a lot of just irrational anger put toward me. And I can see in their eyes that they can't specifically tell why they're angry, but they're going to be obedient to it. They're going to lean into it. They're going to, that is the hill they are going to die on a lot of times. And I see in this chapter too, how, the heightened emotions kind of take over logical air quotes, big air quotes for again, for everyone who cannot see me, logical thinking when it comes to like trying to achieve a specific goal. I think something Matt was saying earlier about obedience is about who's in control. I think it's also about some kind of end goal. The people who are being obedient to an authority figure, we have a goal or similar to Vanessa's example of Uncle Vernon. He's being obedient to the status quo with the goal of then he can have security in life. But I think the authority figures themselves also have an end goal in which they need other people to be obedient to as well. I guess I want to talk a little bit more about that. Like, what is the end goal? What is the point? What is it that Uncle Vernon is needing in this moment when the entire family is being obedient to him or flipping it back to Petunia or even taking it down a notch back to like Dudley and his desire for obedience from his gang? 
or Mrs. Figs obedience to Dumbledore in just watching over Harry all the time. I'm curious about what is the end goal of all this power play that we see in this chapter? I think bringing up the idea of the intent or the goal of this kind of obedience is really important, especially when we look at, you know, toxic or unjust systems of obedience and how they structure things. Because what happens is paradoxically, they end up working against their own goals, right? Because presumably somebody like Vernon, he's been told in the narrative of kind of patriarchy or toxic masculinity, if you have control over your family, you can protect them. You are the one responsible for keeping them safe. If you have control over them in this way, you will keep them safe. Like what happens in this chapter is because he's so desperate to control everything, he makes them manifestly less safe. Dudley only gets to eat a pack of chips. He doesn't right, even exactly. get like a full meal like his family is starving. So he is, he's, doing, he's taking all these actions to like keep his family safe, which are empirically making his family less safe. And so like the idea that these systems of obedience or control or whatever do have end goals, but that in people's desperation to abide or in the ways in which they are controlled by those systems, they actually making everyone around them less safe. That's the paradox of this kind of systemic obedience, unjust obedience. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Can I switch gears just a smidge? So someone we have not talked about is the guy who the book is named after, young Mr. Harry Potter. And I think that's because we see him being very disobedient at every turn. But going back to my story, I would reframe that of him just being obedient to himself and his own end goals. It's just like, I don't care what's going on. Like, I have something that I need to do. So I'm going to go toward whatever this is. And I'm curious to know if you guys take a step back and think, what would it look like if everyone in the chapter kind of had that kind of same self-obedience? 
What would it look like if Dudley did what he wanted to do? If Petunia did what she wanted to do? If Vernon did what he wanted to do? Do you think things would change? Do you think they wouldn't go to the house on the on the rock? Or do you think things kind of still would have ended up going the same way? If like they were truly obedient to themselves and their own desires and what they actually want. And I think that involves taking some time to think about what is it that these characters actually want for themselves. Yeah, but I think we need to parse out like what we mean by self, like obedient to self, right? Like I think part of who Petunia is, is she is going to submit to the control of Vernon, right? So there's a part of her that wants, who knows? She says like, do you really think that's going to work? It's not going to work, right? She says this to Vernon in the chapter, but the part of her that she's going to be loyal to is not the part that knows that Vernon's wrong. It's the part that is that is submits to his control or whatever, right? Being obedient to oneself is often that there are, there are conflicting things and feelings we have within ourselves, and we have to decide which part of ourself is the one or which principle we're going to define ourselves by, or maybe even decide the kind of self we are going to be by choosing to be loyal to our principle or whatever. Like the self is not fully formed beforehand and we're being, being obedient to ourselves or not. Actually, the choice is what makes us come into a version of ourselves. What you said about everyone has like a higher authority to answer to in their own perceived experience, it really just made me think like everyone does, even Dumbledore and like everyone in the books. It made me think of, (laughs) remember that time in book four when everyone was like, we can't do this thing because an old cup said so? Like, it's just I was just thinking of the same moment. I was like, who says? It's like, oh yeah, like the cup has, the cup of blue fire has all the authority and we have none in this situation. But, and it made me think, (laughs) it made me think about Dumbledore and I'm like, what is the higher authority that Dumbledore is answering to? And I think that comes back to my, again, the circling orbs of loyalty, control, and goals. The orb of goals comes back around. What is the end goal that Dumbledore is always trying to get to? What is Dumbledore's North Star? It is defeating Voldemort and ending this upcoming reign of wizard, pureblood wizard supremacy. And I wonder if there is ever a time in which a goal is so important that it is okay to manipulate the obedience of others. I don't know if that's true or not, but we see Dumbledore do it a lot. People do a lot of things out of blind loyalty to Dumbledore. And I wonder if that's ever like excusable or okay. I think the language you use there, Jolie, of manipulate, yeah, I'm uncomfortable with that language. But I think that like, you know, you spoke about the Black Lives Matter movement, like to kind of look back a generation to the civil rights movement, there was this idea that civil disobedience is not disobedience, it's obedience to a higher moral law. And that actually the acts of the civil rights movement was to actually hold other people to that standard and make it visible, make that standard visible to the larger population, right? And so that, I, I would never call that manipulation, but I think it is saying like, no, there is a higher law and we are gonna show how you are being disobedient to it. And we're gonna like try to put pressure on you to become obedient to it. This idea that everyone's obeying something, right? I think is, one of my one of my favorite thinkers is this mid 20th century woman named Simone Weil. And she has a slide where she basically says like, everybody's obedient, whether you want to be or not. Because at the very least, you did not make the atoms in your body and you did not write the laws that govern nature. So like you you live in the world that you must to some degree obey and part of being a human is learning to have some peace over what you can't control and then where you can exert control to do it with some justice and to do it with some care and to do it with some compassion for others. I love that. It also was kind of hard for me not to think about Dumbledore and manipulation in the same sentence. So... <laughs> 
but I appreciate the the language adjustment. I think that that feels better to me as well. So thank you. So Jolie, we're now going to move on to our spiritual practice. Matt, do you want to pick a sentence for us oh, gosh. to do Lectio Divina sure. with? Uh, sure, Vanessa. Here's the sentence I have just randomly selected. On Saturday, things began to get out of hand. Story of my life. <laughs> <laughs> um, on Saturday, things began to get out of hand. So Jolie, step one of Lectio Divina is we just talk a little bit about the context and also what is literally happening in this sentence. What have we got here? Um, Context-wise, Uncle Vernon has just stayed at home, burned all of Harry's letters, um, has nailed up the door, and is feeling more satisfied about his thwarting the arrival of the letters. Um, But things are getting out of hand very quickly. And what's interesting to me about it is the word began. Like, things have gotten out of hand a few days ago. But don't you think there's an escalation when, like, the letters are inside the eggs? Like, I had to read, read that <laughs> sentence a couple of times. I was like, wait, they're in the eggs? That's weird. That's saying that the magical world got it out of hand. If this is from Harry's point of view, Vernon acting abusively and erratically is standard fare. But the world coming to meet Harry and, like, really try to find him, that is out of hand. And that is totally new. Yeah. I would assume that's literally what's happening. So step two of Lectio Divina is allegory. So what other stories does this remind us of? On Saturday, things began to get out of hand. It reminds me of the Bible where on Saturday you finally get to rest. It's like things on Friday got out of hand. On the sixth day, he made man, which I would argue is getting out of hand. And then Saturday, he's like, okay, I'm going to take a break. But maybe it's that rest is what's out of hand. That's what it reminds me of. Jolie, does it remind you of any other stories? I'm trying to think. The only thing that's coming to mind is Dragon Ball Z. Are you also a Dragon Ball Z fan? I am. What? We can have a long discussion about how Goku is a terrible father and that Piccolo actually raised Gohan. Oh, of course. However, <laughs> however, I always think about it's always like, stay tuned to the next episode of Dragon Ball Z, where things are going to get worse than where we left them off at being in the previous episode. And as a kid, I watched my cartoons on Saturday. So I'm waking up on Saturday, waiting for things to get super out of hand to see what's going to happen to Goku and the gang. So, yeah, that's all that's coming to mind right now. Matt, what about you? It's two on the nose every week. Like when you brought out the Bible, when I think of Saturday, this is traditionally this is Jesus's descent into hell is on Saturday, right? So that like within the economy of like Christian narrative, that is when like everything gets gets real on Saturday. I hadn't I think I haven't thought enough about like the relationship between Sabbath as a day of rest and the descent uh, into hell, which is interesting. This Harry Potter chapter is an unexpected place for me to like have this like, oh, boy, that's interesting kind of insight. Um, so yeah, thanks, Vanessa. That's interesting. The Bible, Dragon Ball Z, we all have our sacred texts, everyone. <laughs> so step three is what does this remind us of in our own lives? On Saturday, things began to get out of hand. In my own life, I'm actually thinking to another example of me being obedient to what someone else wants of me, like knowing on Sunday I need to get up, prep for prep for work, go to church and do all the do all those other things. But 
I typically will always like, yeah, let's go pre-COVID, of course. Yeah, let's have one more drink. Let's go to one more bar. Let's watch one more movie and stay up one more hour later. And things are just getting super out of hand for me because of my disobedience to what I actually need to do. That's what it's thinking of me. for me. Saturday is usually when all of my routines just go straight to hell. <laughs> like, who cares? Mine's really related to Jolie's actually, because, because, you know, I'm a person that preaches on Sundays and like every week on Monday, I'm like, I'm going to get my sermon started early and like, I'm going to like work on it and, and think about it and reflect upon it. And I never do. And then it gets to Saturday and it's amazing how long I can put off actually getting to work on my sermon, right? Like things get out of hand on Saturday because suddenly it's 8 PM and I haven't started my sermon yet. And I have to preach in the morning, right? Like best laid plans on Monday, always get out of hand by Saturday. Absolutely. Okay, so step four is what do we feel called to? The sentence one more time is on Saturday, things began to get out of hand. Especially in this pandemic year, but maybe just in general, kind of everybody's kind of at the end of their rope. For everybody in everybody's life, things have been getting out of hand for a long time. And so just patience, patience <laughs> with one another, patience with people, because a lot of people are have, have been dealing with a lot for a long time. And so be patient with their celebrations and also their procrastinations or whatever. Jolie, did anything occur to you? Mine was actually kind of similar to Matt's, but before I want to know, I thought of it before he said it. So I'm not copying off of Matt. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm feeling called to abandoning my sense of urgency. Again, to Vanessa's point, I see in the text that things are always going to be a little weird, a little hectic, a, a little going on. It's all about how we perceive them to be urgent. So on Saturday, we started to perceive that things are getting out of hand in the text. And on Saturday, I started to perceive that I'm going to be unprepared for work on Monday. Um, but I'm realizing that, you know, regardless, Monday is going to come. Um, regardless in the text, the letters are going to come. It's all about how we perceive the urgency. So I'm learning things are going to come when they come and I'll just have to face them when they do to quote Harry Potter. <laughs> the thing that I'm thinking of, and this is a sort of turn is this like out of hand that I'm latching on to. I've had like a very expensive few months, like things just keep breaking. I needed a new phone when that wasn't in my budget. Like all these just like expenses popped up. So I've now like moved into austerity mode. I'm like, if I don't absolutely need something, like I am not spending money on it. Actually, when I feel broke, the thing I always need to do more and more is donate and like let things out of my hand because we have no control over our money. Like we can budget and be careful and whatever. But like as much as I feel broke, I feel broke in my like beautiful home and with so much wealth and privilege. And so I need, I think I need to like intentionally let go of some money and send it to a good place. I hear you on that. I recently moved and I've been feeling super, super, super broke, like, and like, like paying two rents in two places and two sets of utilities in two places for three months was a lot, but it was so easy for me to like drop several hundred dollars on a friend's birthday celebration remotely. And it made right. me feel better. And I'm I, I understand that. Like, it doesn't make sense. It's like, you have no money. Why are you spending money on this thing? But it felt like a better use of those those funds. So I get that. And I also recognize that that also comes from a huge place of privilege in the middle of a pandemic to be able to do those kinds of things and to be able totally. to share um, with others in this time is really important, too. Yeah. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. 
Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimold Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. So it's now time for us to honor people in our community who have lost someone to COVID. And Jolie is going to read the names of those community members and add someone in her own life. So today we're going to honor Ray Cannon, who is 82, a boppy, a daddy, a monkey, and a chicken whisperer. David Grant Meeker, who is 80. William Pop Bell, who is 76, gruff but loving and accepting grandfather. Francis Mathieu, age 69, he loved to laugh. Alan Lorimer, 92-year-old Yankees fan and pop-pop to many. Sam Mislow, age 78, a grandpa, a happy man, and a sweet friend. And my Aunt Ellen Marie, who passed um, at the top of COVID, who was a matriarch and always said what was on her mind right up until the very end. Love you, auntie. May their memories be a blessing. So it is now time for our voicemail, which you all have been sending in blessings for characters in the chapters. Thank you so much. So this voicemail is from Zoe. Hey, Vanessa, Matt, and Ariana. My name is Zoe, and I'm calling because I wanted to offer a blessing of gratitude for Percy. 
So I think I'm in the same boat as a lot of people when I say that Percy is a character that I really hated the first time I read the books, but largely because of this podcast and the last time around reading Order of the Phoenix, I found myself really relating to him as a character. I graduated in May 2020, and like many other college graduates in a pandemic, I found myself moving back home with my parents and into my childhood bedroom. As you can imagine, this transition was particularly rough for me. So I was in a place that I felt like I had grown and I had lost my support system of my college friends and found myself having a lot of arguments with my family. It wasn't until this last reading of Order of the Phoenix that I felt like I was really in the same position as Percy and found myself relating to him. He felt like he had found community and purpose in the ministry and he couldn't quite find that at home. I don't think Percy made the right decision by any means, but reading him through a more understanding lens has allowed me to have more empathy and patience for myself in my own situation. It also gives me so much comfort and gratitude to know that Percy was able to come back in the seventh book and was welcomed back with open arms, and that takes a lot of bravery. So many blessings to Percy and the practice of being kind and patient with yourself. I also received that blessing of kindness and gratitude, and I hope other people are receiving that as well. Please be nice to yourself while you're in the middle of a transition. I promise you are not alone in going through it. So thanks. I just want to say thanks for the blessing. I think a lot of people need to hear that. So Matt, who would you like to offer your blessing to? I would like to bless Petunia this chapter, and this kind of circles back to something we discussed in the chapter discussion. But the way I've traditionally read uh, Petunia is that, you know, she had this sort of early childhood experience of rejection and hurt losing her sister and that she kind of just ran away from the magical world and wanted someone who would wanted a life that would be full of order and everything non-magical. And because of that, just just made a really bad choice with Vernon. (laughs) Yeah, because Vernon's just not a kind person. And I feel like Petunia has a really miserable life. You can see that Petunia knows that Vernon is in the wrong here, that they're not going to be able to get away from these letters and that it's all futile and that, that things are getting out of hand. But she has no choice. She's trapped in this in this situation where she has to follow him around and drag her son around and go to this unsafe shack with a gun. I don't think that she made the right choice. And I'm not saying that she doesn't, she doesn't have some accountability in this process. But I also f- feel like she's trapped and I have some sympathy for her and feel bad for her. So just, yeah. So that's why I want to offer her a blessing. I want to bless Harry, and this is the first time I've ever gotten to bless Harry. I'm very excited. Go Harry. I want to bless him for this moment. It's the second to last paragraph in the chapter. It says he's counting down to his birthday on Dudley's watch, and he says one minute to go. He'd be 11, 30 seconds, 20, 10, 9. Maybe he'd wake Dudley just to annoy him. Three, two, one. And I just want to bless him for that instinct. I want to bless him for being like, I don't want to celebrate alone. And so much so that I'm like willing to wake Dudley just to like share this moment, even though Dudley's going to be annoyed. And actually, I'm going to take pleasure in annoying Dudley. I really see myself in Harry. And I think it comes from a deeper place of like wanting a connection, because I think often when we want to annoy people we love, even though it's arguable that Harry loves Dudley, but like it's really just wanting to connect with them in some way. And Harry doesn't want to celebrate his birthday alone. And so I want to bless him for that. Jolie, bring us home. Who would you like to bless? I'm actually going to bless Dudley in this chapter. I really felt for Dudley a rare moment of feeling sympathy for any of the Dursleys, but 
Dudley's just a kid. He also is 11 years old and his entire way of life is being uprooted. It starts with him not being able to have his way, which he's super used to. And then he can't watch his favorite shows. And then he's traveling to several places he's never been to before. The authority figure in his life, his father, has become super unreliable. And he's not even eating regularly, not even eating regularly for him, but for any child. He's not having enough to eat. And I just want to offer a blessing for anyone dealing with some instability right now. Dudley's situation was super relatable to me as a kid. I moved around a lot. There was a lot of food insecurity in my life. Um, So I just offer a blessing for any person, but especially any child who is going through some transitional period um, or some instability. Um, It's rough out here, so... I hope they receive my blessing and are able to find some peace. Next week, we're going to be reading chapter four, The Keeper of the Keys. Matt, Jolie, what do you think our theme should be based on what we talked about this week? Should we do power? I mean, the thing that's still pinging in my head is is when you're talking about, about celebration. It is Harry's birthday. Why not? It's Harry's birthday and he becomes a wizard. Let's do celebration. I love, I love it. that, Matt. Okay. Next week, chapter four, Keeper of the Keys through the theme of celebration. Jolie, thank you so much. You made Matt Potts and John Green look like really poor guest hosts. <laughs> Take that, John. Um, I'm kidding. <laughs> I like your book so much. And I'm so glad to finally meet Matt in person. Um I, I get all of my inspiration on how to be a good guest host from listening to his old episodes. So I appreciate it. And I appreciate you guys for having me and Ariana for making me feel like I'm doing a good job. So <laughs> thanks, you guys. Anytime. I love it here. You're an absolute star that we cherish. So thank you so much. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And you can find listeners who are discussing the episodes in the Facebook common room. You can join our local groups and come and join the community of people supporting us on Patreon. You can leave us a review on iTunes and send us a voicemail. Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is a Not Sorry production. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. This week we are edited by Juliana Bradley. Music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we are distributed by Acast. Thanks this week go to Julie Doggett for joining us this week and for winning the 30-second recap. To Zoe for sending us this week's voice memo. To Molly Baxter, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Megan Kelly, Casper Terkyle, Stephanie Paulsell, and everyone who sent in names of loved ones who they've lost to COVID. Thanks, everyone. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye. Honestly, I can't remember what the title of the chapter is right now. Like, everything is gone. Everything is gone. It's all gone. (laughs) But we'll go. It'll be over in 30 seconds. That's what I'm telling myself. You'll be great, Harvard professor. I think it's so good for people to hear that Harvard professors are dumb, too. Well, I'm doing my best for everyone because this is dumb. <laughs>